Hello, this is David Sangster, lead pastor at New Life Church. Thank you for joining us today for our podcast. It's our goal to help you grow in your faith and discover all that God has for you. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and inspired. Enjoy the message. So good morning. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, I am so excited to talk to you this morning. Normally they have me stored away in the back of the church, and I get to look at the back of your heads, and this morning I get to look at your faces, and it is just great to see you all here. It is great to be here in the house of the Lord with my brothers and my sisters. And I want to tell you that I feel that this is a privilege to be able to stand up here and share the word of God with you this morning. The title of today's message is Salt. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34. So if you can open up your Bibles, if you have them, uh, mine's digital, but that's okay. And um, any verses that we use that aren't right there in Acts, we're going to put on the screen behind me. Acts 17 is an amazing scripture because it is one, they all speak to us, but this one in particular speaks to us today in a loud way. And I, like I said, I am just so excited and I hope you are too. So I just want to pray over the word and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we appreciate that you have left us a written account of your thoughts and your love. So God, we thank you that we get to read it and wrestle with it and meditate over it. God, I don't know where we would be without your word. So I thank you for it and I pray that this morning it would be illuminated and that we would be able to walk in it this morning. So I want to start by asking you all a question. It's a rhetorical question. You don't need to shout your answer back to me, but what is it that you actually believe? Why do you get up every Sunday morning and come to church? Like if you got up right now and you walked out into the mall and somebody grabbed you and said, hey, person at church, what is it that you really believe and what would you tell them? And I want you to think about that answer and hold it in your mind, and we'll get back to it in a moment. So when I study the Word, I have this habit that I have where I say, okay, this is happening to Paul, this is happening to me, and I try to draw like a straight line between those two things. And it doesn't really ever work as well as I want it to because people in the Bible had different cultural norms than I do, they had different languages than I do, and they had different sensibilities. But what I do realize is that these people are dealing with the same spiritual problems that we deal with today. So we're going to go back in time quite a bit, about 1,970 years ago to the year 50 AD. And that's where we're going to find the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens, 50 AD. Now, Athens was a marvelous and interesting ancient city. It had a high quality of life for its citizens. It was a major center of commerce, and it was culturally and religiously diverse by a first century standard. The Athenians were a free people, and when Paul is in Athens, it's during a period of time called the Pax Romana. So Rome was, the Roman Empire was huge, it was peaceful, and it was stable. And I'm going to include a lot of little details like that, historical details, because I think it is important 
that we realize that these aren't Bible stories. They're narratives. It's history, right? This stuff really happened. It's not Aesop's fables. This is the word of God. Our faith is rooted in history, and archaeology continues to prove the biblical narrative. It puts the right people in the right places at the right time. God loves us so much, he lets us check his math, and we get to see God's word in real history. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. First thing, Paul's spirit was provoked, right? And this story isn't really about Paul anyway. It's about the Holy Spirit. Paul is just the vessel that the Spirit uses to do its work in Athens. And I want to encourage you this morning to let the Holy Spirit provoke you to do God's work. Second thing, there's idols everywhere. Does this sound familiar to you? It sounds familiar to me. You can tell a lot about a culture by their idols. And I'm always amazed by the idol worship in the Bible, right? Moses is gone for like two seconds, and they have the calf, right? The prophets of Baals, uh, they're up on the, on the mountain, and they're cutting themselves. They're bleeding all over the place saying, idol, please help me. It never works. We know they don't work. So why the idol worship? Well, mankind was made to worship, so we're going to worship something. But also, we are sinful, so we're going to create gods that don't make us address that sin. Paul did his debating and his evangelizing in Athens out in the open because he had nothing to hide. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So now we meet the Epicureans and the Stoics. And these philosophers were the most common worldview in Athens at the time. They were the intellectual elite, they were the mainstream thought, and they were pretty much the thought police. The Stoics were pantheists. So they had this thing where they kind of believed that the universe and nature and God were basically all the same thing. The Epicureans were deists. So they kind of had this thing where they think the gods created the universe, they wound it up like a clock, and now it's just playing out. That God would be very unconcerned with what was happening in, in their lives. They had works-based faith. These guys would reject the notion that God would insert himself into history particularly to save you. So there's a chasm between what the Epicureans and the Stoics believed and what Paul believed. But Epicureanism and Stoicism is still here 
today, right? The old paganism is the same as the new paganism. There's nothing new under the sun. And where you'll find this philosophy nowadays is in the self-help section of a local bookstore, right? Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, training the flesh is what they seek to do. They wanted to use their works to create a better lives for themselves. And as Christians, we do that too, in a way. We know that our flesh is sinful. It's that fallen part of us. So we want to do that too. But what self-help books don't do for you is if we, the, the, when you're trying to control your flesh, if that effort is empowered by the Holy Spirit and tethered to the Word of God, it has no power to change you. So where did they bring Paul? They brought Paul to a place called the Areopagus. It is also known as the Hill of Ares, Ares Rock, more famously, Mars Hill. You can still go there today. This is what it looks like now. I'm sure it looked a little better back then in 50 AD, right? It's a ruin now. But here's what you might not know about this place. The Areopagus was a court. And in Greek mythology, it was a traditional site for justice. So uh, in like a scene out of uh, like Greek god reality TV, here's what played out there. There was Ares, the god of war, and he had a daughter. And then there is Poseidon, who had a son named Halorotheus. Ares murdered Halorotheus because Halorotheus assaulted Ares' daughter. He assaulted her sexually. It was a serious thing. So Ares killed him, and the gods put Ares on trial right here at the Areopagus. So this place had significance. When they brought Paul there, it wasn't just some place. This place had significance. So remember that question I asked you this morning. What is it that you believe anyway? Why do you come here on a Sunday morning? This isn't a social club, right? Okay? The Stoics and the Epicureans wanted to know what Paul believed, and they were going to have him testify literally because he was on trial. Athens had a history of hostility toward new ideas that were foreign to them. So Paul is standing at the Areopagus, and what we get to see next is amazing. We get to see a man of God, full of the Holy Spirit, speaking truth to unbelievers. And we're going to listen to what Paul had to say to these men, but I want to share first with you a verse. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That last part, do it with gentleness and respect. My Bible calls this next section the Areopagus Address. And we're going to read the whole thing now, uh, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life 
and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And, he, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's a part of me that wanted to read that, we'll close in prayer and just go home. Because who could say it better than that? Who could say it better than Paul? What Luke records in Acts, the Areopagus address, it was probably just a summary because it only took, I don't know, a minute for me to read, maybe two. Paul probably spoke for much, much longer. Paul was known to preach very long sermons. Later on in Acts, we read about how Paul would preach long past midnight. His sermons were so long, in fact, someone once fell asleep, fell out of a third-story window to their death because they were so bored. This, right, Eutychus, this poor guy, he fell asleep due to boredom. And I'm sure that's how many of you feel right now listening to me. <laughs> so here's what the Areopagus address, it was, it, this, is not, this is what it wasn't. It was not. This was not a friendly chat. This was not a self-help lecture. This wasn't a brainstorming session. And it wasn't one of those TED Talks on the internet. You know, like Paul and Common Grace. It wasn't any of that. The way Paul answered these men had serious consequences because Athens had a history of hostility toward new ideas. Have you ever heard of Socrates, the famous philosophy? Yeah. Well, they killed him. They killed him. They sentenced him to death in Athens for, here are his crimes, failing to acknowledge the gods that the city acknowledges. Sounds like Paul. Introducing new deities. Sounds like Paul. Corrupting the minds of the youth. Sounds like Paul. That was 450 years before Paul was at the Areopagus. And as an educated Jew, I'm sure this was not lost on him. So he knew that this was a serious conversation. But what Paul gives us in the Areopagus address is a blueprint for evangelism and for apologetics. So I want to take a brief look at that blueprint. Compliments. Paul compliments the men of Athens. He was not rude to them. He says, I see that you are very religious. He doesn't go in there like hitting them over the head with his Bible, right? It's okay for us to be nice. Uh, when he, yeah. <laughs> he, notice Paul doesn't start with, we read earlier in Acts how he said uh, he's in the city and he's disturbed by all the, all the idol worship. He doesn't start with that. Like, I got a bone to pick with you Gentiles, you idol worshipers. No, he was nice. He says, I see that you are very religious. But what Paul also does is he gives the men some context. Paul uses a statue that was already there to lead them toward Christ. In verse 23, 
he points them toward the statue of the unknown God. They already worship this thing, but Paul's saying, I can use this as a tool, okay? In verse 28, Paul also quotes a Greek poet named Eratus. Now, Eratus uh, was well-read by the Stoics, and he wrote a poem called Phenomenea, which appears to be about the Greek god Zeus. And Paul quotes, For we are indeed his offspring. And the line in that poem before that line, which isn't recorded in Acts, is, Everywhere, everyone is indebted to God. Right? So he realizes the Athenians, they're religious people, but they have a pagan culture. But Paul says, I can use that pagan culture as a platform to build a relationship with these people. It's useful for us to know about secular culture. It makes us relatable, and it gives us a platform to form a relationship. As much as cultures try to eliminate God, they can't. And I'll give you a, a kind of a silly example. So I think our country, our pop culture is Hollywood movies. People spend a lot of time going to the movies, watching Netflix. The highest grossing movie of all time from Hollywood is a dumb superhero movie. It's true. And the other day, me and my wife were watching this dumb superhero movie. And, you know, it's, it's, it's about guys that fly around in iron suits. It's, you know, the Marvel stuff. And this movie is the culmination of about a dozen previous movies. So, like, you're invested if you're watching this. And as the movie comes to an end, the main character realizes that the only way to win, to save his friends, to save the world, and to defeat evil is to lay his life down. And as the movie goes, Iron Man dies. So I look over at my wife, and she's crying right? Like ugly crying, right? So then she looks over at me, and I'm crying. <laughs> ugly crying. This is a true story. But then, about 15 seconds later, I start laughing. I'm belly laughing. I'm like, this is so dumb. Why do I care about the man in the iron suit? But then it hit me. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. That's the gospel. Now, it's a little bit of a different take on it, if you will. It's not biblical. But the gospel is the greatest love story ever told. And these movies, they try to say that's not what it's about. But, but it's, it's in our nature. It's written on our hearts. We love hero stories. We love um, superhero stories. And you know what we love too? Comeback stories, right? Let me tell you what the greatest comeback story of all time is. A man saved from his sins by the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no greater comeback than that. All the great stories are ours as Christians. Not to, you know, we shouldn't boast about it, but they are. And we can use these stories, pop culture, to relate to the culture that's around us. I'm not endorsing all the filth that comes out of Hollywood. I'm not. Or music or whatever. God has given us a discerning mind, and we can use that mind to decide what parts of the culture we can use to relate to the people around us. That's the blueprint. Complement and context. Be nice. Try to be personable. We have to have a relatability about us or we can't evangelize. So now what? 
What do we do? We preach the good news. Romans 10, 14 through 15 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And you might be thinking, all right, Mike, I believe in the gospel, but how would I know what to say? So remember that question I asked you earlier. What is it that I really believe? And how would I communicate that to someone who doesn't believe? It sounds simple, but it's, it's kind of not. So the takeaway from the Areopagus address is submit to the Holy Spirit. And we see Paul do that in real time. Paul had no doubt what he was going to say to the men in Athens. Luke 12, 11 through 12 says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Holy Spirit will guide your thoughts and your words. And I want to encourage you this morning, do not be afraid to speak the truth. Because it doesn't matter what the Epicureans think of what you believe. And it doesn't matter what the Stoics think of what you believe. It doesn't matter what your boss thinks of what you believe. It doesn't matter what your secular college professor thinks of what you believe. It doesn't matter what your unbelieving family member thinks of what you believe. Paul didn't go looking for a confrontation. He was just preaching and teaching in Athens like he always does. Here's another way to put it. Charles Spurgeon wrote in a sermon, Christ and his co-workers. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling, that they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel, is to just let it out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare approach that lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all of his adversaries. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out of the cage. We're coming up on Easter now. And we can't forget, they beat Jesus, they mocked Jesus, they hung him on a tree. But three days later, when that stone was rolled away, Jesus walked out of that grave. He walked out like the king of all kings. The lion is out of the cage now. Oh, death, where is your sting? That is our hope. The lion is out of the cage. That's the gospel. It's that simple. Jesus is alive. The gospel speaks for itself because it is true. Let the lion out of his cage. When the time came to testify, when they came and they grabbed Paul, he was ready. He let the lion out of the cage. 
And that power is still available for you and for me today. We just have to trust the Holy Spirit. I think the church has developed a couple of bad habits when we try to reach out to unbelievers. First bad habit, sometimes we water down the Word of God, okay? And I'm not even sure if that's really possible, but in so that it is, if you don't preach the gospel fully, it loses its exclusivity, and that is dangerous because Jesus is the only way, not one of the ways. Second problem, don't sugarcoat the Word of God. Because the message of grace without the message of repentance is pretty much a license to sin. And that is very dangerous. So here's where the title of the message comes in. Paul writes to the Colossians, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let your words always be gracious. Let your speech be salty. Not watered-down preaching, not sugar-coated preaching, but salty gospel preaching. So salt is a common element when we cook. It's used primarily to preserve food or to season food. So how many of you like to cook? Anybody? I know Alberta does <laughs> like to cook. Okay, so... When, what we do with salt is you don't put salt in food to taste the salt because when something has too much salt in it, you say, this tastes salty. When there's not enough salt in food, you say, give me the salt. But when food is properly salted, what it does is it brings the pre-existing flavor of the food out. It makes it alive, right? You don't want to taste the salt. You want to taste the food you put the salt on. Salt brings out pre-existing flavor. And God's word is a lot like that salt. It makes everything taste better. It makes everything taste more like it was created to taste, and it brings the flavor out of the creation around you. And just like when your favorite meal isn't properly seasoned, it's good, but you know something is missing. And I want to tell you, that's a lot like the culture we live in today. Right? Like We know we're blessed. There's a lot of good things in our culture but something isn't right, right? Something in our culture doesn't taste right because it hasn't been properly salted with the hope of Jesus Christ. The culture has lost its flavor. Life might not seem fulfilling as it could be to many around you because life doesn't taste right when it's separated from the gospel. I want to encourage you this morning. We need to be a gracious people. We need to be salty people. And part of being salt in a culture is having the ability to meet people where they are. 1 Corinthians 9.22 says, To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I, I may by every means save some. So the big idea of the message is this. Meet people where they are. To bring the gospel to an unbelieving world, we need to meet people where they are because that's the only place we can meet people, right? Jesus met Paul right where he was. Jesus met me right where I was. I'm sure that's where he met you as well. We can be all things to all people. 
And there may be a time for the church to shake the dust off our feet and move on to another culture. But I don't think that that is this time. Right now, there is a culture right there, right outside those doors, that desperately needs us to bring them the word of God. Paul met the Athenians right where they were at. He met them in the marketplace. He met them at the Areopagus. And in fact, he is still standing there. There's three more verses in Acts. I'd like to read them. 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear about this from you again. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So you preach the gospel. You're going to get one of three reactions. In verse 32, some people mocked Paul. They were not convinced. And this is something we should expect. We're not going to convince everyone of the message. Someone else might convince them down the line. But God's will is sovereign. So sometimes we can't control how other people react. In verse 32, you'll notice also that some people said, Paul, we're going to hear from you about this again. These people are the maybes. These people are the wait and sees. These people will hear from you about this again. You might be the only Christian that these people know. And that's a great responsibility for us to have. Because sometimes how we live our lives is the most powerful form of preaching that we can do. So we need to be holy and sanctified. Verse 34 says that some people joined Paul and believed. The angels rejoiced. Paul did convince some people of the word of God. It was heard, received. So now the opportunity comes to teach, to mentor, to disciple. Invite someone to church. Pray with them. Give them one of those Bibles you have lying around. I've got like a stack that I don't need. Oftentimes it's asked, what would Jesus do? And that is a great question. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes I want to ask, what would Paul do? Acts 17, that's the answer to what Paul would do. He was obedient to the Holy Spirit. He met people right where they were. He was respectful and gracious. He complimented the men of Athens. He wasn't rude. He gave them some context from their culture. Church, my prayer for you this morning is that we get salty again. There's a culture out there that desperately needs to hear the word of God. There's a culture out there that has lost its flavor. So I say this week and beyond that we bring them some salt. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for my brothers and my sisters. And I thank you for your church. God, I pray that your gospel would be let out of its cage. That like a lion, it would devour all its adversaries. God, I pray that we would dive deep into your truths, into your word. And God, that we would build relationships with people so that we may bring them to you. God, it is so important. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on out there. But the antidote is your holy word. So I pray over my brothers and sisters this week that they would just get out there and be salty Christians, Christians who spread 
your word. They evangelize, fulfill our commission. And God, I pray this week that my brothers and sisters would be happy and healthy. And I pray all of this in your glorious name, Jesus. Thank you very much. So as the guys get the music on in the back, I encourage you to uh, stay around and chat. And uh, I hope you have a great week. Thank you very much. Thank you.